we will eventually make our way to Proverbs 1. Um, so I'll go ahead and ask you to turn there. Soon enough we'll be in Proverbs 1. So I'm going to preach a sermon this morning I probably should have preached several months ago. Um, so we've been dipping into Proverbs over the past few months. Uh, we've been seeing how godly wisdom should govern our lives, every aspect of our lives. We've talked about uh, our inner life quite a bit, pride and humility, uh, anger and patience, to name a couple. We've talked about Proverbs on money, Proverbs on drinking, Proverbs about lots of things. Um, we've talked about how to be wise in many areas, but actually... Uh, as I sort of uh, thought about all that we said about Proverbs, I didn't actually start where Proverbs does. Partly meaning I didn't start in chapter 1, and also partly meaning I didn't start with the basics of wisdom. The most fundamental questions Proverbs raises uh, is what is wisdom and why does it matter that we have it? Where is wisdom to be found? How do we get wisdom? And so what I want to do this morning is just ask a few basic questions Go back to the beginning and just think about wisdom wisdom from a 30,000-foot view. So let's begin with the most fundamental question. What are we talking about when we're talking about wisdom? Basically, wisdom is the art of living well. Wisdom is the art of living well. And there is a distinction between wisdom and knowledge or wisdom and IQ. My favorite... Uh, little definition of wisdom goes, goes this way. I heard this somewhere. Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put one in a fruit salad. Doesn't that capture it? It's one thing to know a tomato is a fruit. It's another thing to know what to do with that fruit and what not to do with that fruit. It's a good distinction between wisdom and knowledge. We have all known people who were book smart and life dumb. Haven't you known people like that? There are people with much higher IQs than any of us who have made absolute messes of, our, of their lives and we would never want to trade places with them. Wisdom is the thing that equips us to command all that we know, to take command of all that knowledge and apply it to actually living well. If you want to know a wise person, you wouldn't look at their IQ. You would look at the direction of their life. How have things gone for them? What sorts of decisions have they made? The Bible makes this distinction, by the way, between wisdom and and knowledge. There's an interesting verse in Jeremiah 18. It's funny, it comes from people who are actually slandering Jeremiah, but this is what they say. They, they recognize this distinction. They say, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. So they're saying we've got to get rid of Jeremiah because he's not going to stop preaching this, this word that, that we don't like. But they make this distinction between, between what the priest knows and what the prophet knows and what the wise man knows. So the priest, the priest is, of course, the custodian of the law. Once the law was given, the priest was really the guy who knew all the ins and outs of the law. The prophets, of course, spoke God's word. More often than revealing new words from God, usually what they did was simply call God's people back to the word that had already been revealed. But in between the priest and the prophet, he says, is counsel from the wise. The priests have the law, the prophets have the word, and the, the wise have counsel. In other words, those rules and commandments need application. They need wisdom. They need discernment, good judgment, insight. You, you need more to navigate life. You need a little more than the priest and the prophet. You need a sage. You need an elder. You need a wise man 
who, yes, knows God's Word, but also knows the world and knows people and knows what that Word looks like in practice. And so you can have the law, but how does that law apply in its specifics? The specifics of everyday life are fine-grained enough. We might need more than just a Bible verse. We need the wisdom to understand how that verse applies in different situations today, in different contexts. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is basically the art of living well. Taking command of all that we should know, because knowledge is fundamental to wisdom, but then taking command of that knowledge and using it to live to live well. Where is wisdom is the next question. You know, we, we, are a, we are a culture that's really starved for wisdom. It's really, it's not a word. It's not even a word we use very much these days. Um, actually, according to uh, Google Analytics, um, works published today use the word wisdom about half as much as published works did in 1800. We use the word about half as much as people did 200 years ago. The, uh, the, the poet T.S. Eliot had a great line about a century ago that's only gotten more true, I think. He asked, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? We know so much about the world, and we know so much less about how to live in this world. And more and more people these days are sensing we are losing something in our technological age. For all that we're gaining in knowledge and technology, we also seem to be losing something. One, one man, Alan Jacobs, put it this way. The internet is the friend of information and the enemy of thought. The internet is the friend of information and the enemy of thought. You know, perhaps the closest things we have today, where people look for wisdom today, are uh, the modern day wise man or sage would be uh, something called a life coach. A life coach. So, somebody whose job it is to help you figure out how to live your life more successfully. Uh, people pay good money for someone to guide them to live more skillfully. In the business world, the closest thing to a wise man would be a consultant, sort of professionalized wise guys who understand how to run businesses well and, and then sell their services for a pretty penny. Life coaches and consultants are the closest thing we have today to the sage, to the wise man. And yet here in the Bible, we have ultimate wisdom from the maker of the world about how to live in this world God made, how to live our lives well, how to live effectively and successfully and we so rarely avail ourselves of that wisdom in the first place. Much more these days, the first place we look is a, is a Google search and, uh, and, and find an article. It's called a life hack these days about how to live your life more efficiently, more effectively. And we tend to see scripture as kind of dry, dusty, antiquated. It has nothing to say to us, we think. And so I want to speak up for biblical wisdom today, that it really is the Bible that ultimate wisdom is found in. But before we go to Proverbs, I want to make this point to you that, uh, that I should have made a lot earlier. Um, the wisdom of the Bible is not conf confined to Proverbs or the wisdom literature. You know, even Jesus at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount makes a call, not to righteous living, but rather to wise living. You know, we, we think the Sermon on the Mount is a text basically about morality, righteousness, and sin. Of course, it has a lot to say about those things. But Jesus ultimately portrays his Sermon on the Mount as a wisdom teaching. You remember how the sermon ends when Jesus says, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a righteous man. No, will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And if we don't listen to him, Jesus doesn't call us unrighteous, though we will be. 
He doesn't call us unrighteous. He doesn't call us lost. He calls us foolish. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. The words of this sermon are not just for morality. They are for wisdom. They are meant to help us see and live well. And so for Jesus, it's not just about righteousness and unrighteousness. It's not just about going to heaven or going to hell. It is about being wise or being foolish. That if we listen to Jesus, we are like the guy who's got enough sense to build his house on a solid foundation. And if we don't listen to Jesus, we are as dumb as the builder on sand. That's that's what it means, he says, whether you listen to me or not. The Sermon on the Mount is about wisdom. It's not just about rule-keeping for righteousness. He wants us to have wisdom for living well. You know, at one point, Jesus sends out his disciples and he says this, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Being a disciple of Jesus isn't just about being a, a nice, innocent, slightly dumb, but obedient person. That's not what being a disciple is. It's about being a wise person who understands how things work. Jesus was about growing people, not just in in abstract righteousness, but in God-oriented wisdom that leads to successful and godly living. This brings us to a third question, perhaps an oddly phrased one, but that is the question, who is wisdom? And, And what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus is not only a great teacher of wisdom, Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom in the Bible. He is the archetype of the wisdom that he taught. I want you to listen to how Isaiah portrays the coming king. This is Isaiah 11, if you want to turn real quick. Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11 and verse 2, Isaiah is looking forward to the coming king of God's people. Listen to how he's described. Isaiah 11 and verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, verse 2, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is going to be, first and foremost, a wise king. And here's what it looks like to have a king with that sort of wisdom in verse 3. The illustration of his wisdom is this. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That's what it looks like to have a wise king. In other words, he's not going to be one of those rulers who can be fooled by a sweet-talking advisor. This is not the sort of ruler who you can pull the wool over his eyes, who, who won't actually see things the way they are and is going to be tricked and is not going to know what's happening in this kingdom. Uh, in Shakespeare's play, King Lear, it tells a story of an old king um, who decides in his, in, his, uh, age, in his age he's going to disperse his kingdom between his three daughters. All he asks of each of his daughters is that they profess their love for him and he will give them each a third of the kingdom. Well, his first two daughters, who, who turn out to be evil... They come and say all the right things to their father with with all the saccharine sweetness and flattery you can imagine. We love you so much. And King Lear falls for it. He gives each of them a third of the kingdom. But the third daughter, who recognizes the treachery and the evil of her sisters, 
decides she's not going to play that game. She's not going to do all that. And so she just comes in and she says, you know what, Dad? I don't love them like they do. I don't love you like they do. I don't love you as much as they do is what she says. She's not going to play the game. And her father is outraged at her, not recognizing, actually, she's the only one who loves him. And, and he ends up disinheriting her, the only one who was, who was honest, the only one who was honorable. And the tragedy of that play is that King Lear doesn't realize until it's too late that the first two daughters who said all the right words were snakes in the grass. Because when they get that power, they ultimately kick their dad out to the street, literally, in the cold and dark stormy night, and he dies. See, King Lear judged by what his eyes saw and by what his ears heard. He could not see past appearances. He did not have true wisdom. What Isaiah says about our king is that we don't have to worry about our king suffering that fate because he is a wise, discerning, understanding king with the spirit of wisdom. In other words, no one is pulling a fast one on King Jesus. He sees behind appearances. He hears behind what is said. That's why he will always judge, verse 3, with righteousness and with equity. In other words, he will do what's right. He will see behind the appearances and always do what's right. Sometimes we're not wise enough to see through the deception, the sell job, the flattery, the empty promises we believe because we want so badly for them to be true. We get taken all the time. Jesus always sees and always knows. His wisdom means he never gets fooled. I think it's telling in the book of Revelation, one of the ways Jesus is described is having eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, he sees, he knows, his piercing gaze is never obscured. Jesus is the consummate wise man. You know, what people were amazed by with Jesus as often as not, was not the miracles, though those were amazing. It was his wisdom they were awed at. This is in Matthew 13. It says, Jesus had finished the parables, and he went away, coming to his hometown. hometown. He taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom? Where did he get this level of insight into God, into human nature? You know, when Jesus told the parables, the parables hit home to such an extent that people began to sense that he really understood, not just what they outwardly said and did, they began to understand that he understood why they did what they did. He understand, understood hidden agendas and unspoken assumptions and ulterior motives. Jesus saw through it all. He could see through, see through the facade of anyone. And another, in another instance, when the Pharisees were harassing Jesus, This is what he said in Matthew 12 and verse 42. He said, The queen of the south will rise up again at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth, from the ends of the earth, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Well, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, Jesus isn't just here to save you from your sins or to tell you right and wrong. He's here to show you how to live well, how to live effectively, insightfully, A greater wise man than Solomon has come. And the rest of the New Testament praises wisdom every bit as much as Jesus does. This isn't just a Proverbs thing. It's not just a Jesus thing. It's a Bible thing. Listen to Colossians 2 and verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, he says, and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, 
that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach the full assurance of the understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which in Christ, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says. Or James, in James 3 and verse 13, James asks, Who is wise? Who is understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James goes on to describe two kinds of people. One whose life is characterized by jealousy and selfishness and conflict. And another who is pure and peaceable, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. In other words, the amount of wisdom we have will determine the kind of person we are and the kind of life we lead, the kind of relationships that we have. James is a book about wisdom. So my point is, first of all, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a wisdom literature thing. It's a a New Testament thing also. But it's also not just an academic thing. Jesus stands as the embodiment of wisdom, the consummate wise man, He invites us to listen to his wisdom, as do Paul and James. And it's not just an old-fashioned thing either, an an old word we don't use as much. It's about listening to the God who made the world, about how to live in the world that he made. It really is that simple. That's what wisdom is. We listen to the God who made the world about the best way to get along in that world. If God exists and if God has spoken, then you have to be a complete moron not to listen to him. I should just use the Bible word. You have to be a complete fool not to listen to him because that's what the Bible calls people who don't, fools. Which brings us to Proverbs 1. I told you eventually we'd get back there. I don't want to think about the beginning of wisdom as Proverbs 1 has it. God wants us to bring all of life under his direction, under the direction of his wisdom. He wants us to see things the way they are, He wants us to make decisions based on that right seeing, which are good for us. He wants us to make choices which are good for our marriages and good for our kids and good for society and good for the world. And the book of Proverbs opens by offering all of this to us. This is Proverbs 1 and verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and this is how he begins, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So verse 1 introduces us to the the Old Testament patron of wisdom. Solomon was interested in using his God-given wisdom um, to immerse himself in all of life. Not just in matters of religion and morality. Solomon wanted to know everything there was to know about the world. And he basically did. This is the description of Solomon and, and his wisdom in 1 Kings 4 and verse 29. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. Breath of mind like sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Kalkal, Darda, the sons of Maol. His fame spread in all the surrounding nations. 
He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that goes out of the wall. He spoke of beasts and of birds, reptiles and of fish. The people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of earth who had heard his wisdom. Solomon was a renaissance man. He knew everything about everything. If it happened on God's earth, he wanted to know about it and he wanted to incorporate it into this body of knowledge that he could then apply to living well. And it says he left us, in all this knowledge, he left us a book for this purpose, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight. He left us this book that we might become people of substance. He wants people who are able to think correctly because we see correctly. He wants us to have insight into life, into ourselves, into the world, into every situation we're in. This is about more than knowing facts. It's about know-how. It's an extra dimension of understanding that goes beyond what to how. It's a competence that makes knowledge profitable because of its insight into the way the world actually works. And so the wise man doesn't just keep beating his head against the wall, making the same mistakes in his life, getting angrier and angrier because the world doesn't conform itself to the way he wants it to be. The wise man understands the way the world actually is. And he is able to successfully adapt himself to that world. The world wise, it's worth noting, the the word wise used throughout Proverbs is a word used in the Bible primarily not to, to describe people who were smart, but people who were skilled. People who were skilled. You know, the craftsmen who constructed the tabernacle, Exodus 35, were, spilt, were filled with the Spirit of God with skill. Were filled with skill. And the word there for skill is the Hebrew word hokmah, the exact same word in Proverbs 1, wisdom. They were filled with wisdom. In other words, wisdom is about knowing what you're doing. Knowing how to use what's at your disposal knowing how to bring about the intended result with what you've been given. That's what wisdom is. What we are being called to do is to be craftsmen of life, able to make our way with the raw materials we've been given, able to make do with our station in life, able to bloom where we've been planted. We are to be skilled in the craft of living well. Verse 3 begins to lay out the process of gaining this skill to receive wisdom, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. There must be a receptivity to instruction, to receive instruction. There must be a receiving of it. There's an underlying humility in order to be taught. I don't know or understand everything. Someone else has more experience and judgment than me, better judgment than me. I need to learn from them to receive this wise instruction. Verse 4 lays out the kinds of things we're going to be learning as we learn wisdom. Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Prudence there, shrewdness or prudence, prudence, um, is about knowing what to do in complex situations where there's more going on than meets the eye, where right and wrong are not obvious. Prudence knows, prudence can see. The opposite of the prudent man would be the simple man. The simple man does not understand the complexity of life. As the saying goes, the fool who rushes in where angels fear to tread. That's the simple man. The simpleton rushes in before he understands the nuances of the situation. He already knows the best thing to do with his gut every single time. 
The simpleton makes a decision before he understands or sees clearly. The, the knowledge he speaks of speaks to really a, a real-world knowledge, a knowledge about the connection from thought to deed to consequence. This is a key part of wisdom, the connection from thought to action to consequence, from what we think to what we do to what results. That's a sequence so many people are ignorant of or in denial about. This sort of wisdom is why so many people go their whole lives making the same mistakes over and over. We don't want to scrutinize for ourselves for what goes wrong in our lives. We just want to look for a scapegoat. We want to blame the government. We want to chalk it up to a mistake without backtracing the patterns of thought that led to it happening. The Proverbs are all about how one thing leads to another, and wisdom is able to trace that back. Just one example. The proverb that says, he who loves oil and wine will not be rich. He who loves oil and wine will not be rich. In other words, if you spend all your paycheck, you're never going to save anything. If you like the best and latest of everything, you're never going to have much in the bank. Proverbs says, don't just get mad and blame the government. You know, conservatives blame too much taxes. Liberals blame not enough social services. Don't go down that road. Look at yourself. When our lives go wrong, it is because we are not thinking about the laws of cause and effect. We are not willing to trace back what resulted to what I did to what I thought. You have to go, go deconstruct it. A good life is about a good chain of wise decisions, which especially Proverbs says, if you can begin making those good decisions while you're young, all that's going to happen is you're going to reap the benefits of wisdom for the rest of your life, and they're just going to get better and better. Because where you're at in your 40s is a product of what you did in your 20s. And where you're at in your 60s is a product of what you did in your 40s. All of life is a long chain of cause and effect. That's part of the knowledge Proverbs offers. And then he uses this word in verse 4, discretion. Uh, verse 3, uh, yeah, verse 4, discretion. Discretion is the ability to see through the surface of things to what's underneath. It's what King Lear didn't have. He didn't understand what was actually going on until it was too late. We need the ability to be able to judge people and situations correctly. And you heard me right. We need to be able to judge people. Judge a righteous judgment. The distinction is made in the New Testament, but judge people. Because you know what? The Bible judges people. The Bible evaluates people's characters with words like wise and foolish. There are such people in the world as wise people and foolish people. The Bible says there are people like that. And there are righteous people and wicked people. And there are truthful people and deceptive people. The Bible judges people. Discretion means the ability to diagnose the true state of someone's character, beginning with ourselves, by the way. Discretion means the ability to diagnose someone's true character and not be fooled by appearances. Discretion means being able to identify who are sheep and who are wolves and who are wolves pretending to be sheep. That's discretion. Verse 5, let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands obtain guidance. There is a strange principle at, at work in, in this verse and in all of, all of wisdom teaching. Uh, it's stated well by Jesus when he says this about his own teaching. He says this, to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken Way. It's, a strange, it's a strange statement. 
But I think it goes along with verse 5, that the wise will hear and increase in learning. The wise will hear and only increase in learning. And, and my point is, our relationship to wisdom is always a cycle, either a vicious cycle or a virtuous cycle. Wisdom either compounds itself and grows more and more and more, or if we are poor of it, we will keep having less and less and less of it. There's a chain reaction to both wisdom and foolishness. So if you are foolish, we will, of course, make foolish decisions by definition. If we're foolish, we make foolish decisions. But, of course, in our foolishness, we will tend to excuse, make excuses for our foolishness or blame others for our foolishness, which, of course, prevents us from learning any lessons from our foolishness and causes us to double down on our foolishness if it's always someone else's fault. See how foolishness is a self-perpetuating cycle? Foolishness begets more foolishness. But by the same token, wisdom begets wisdom. The wise hear and increase in learning. When you have wisdom, you know what? You're always getting more wisdom. You're always listening, and you're always learning, and you're humble enough to receive correction, and you learn from your mistakes when you're wise. Your wise choices will bless your life, which will motivate you to search out more and more wisdom. Proverbs wants us to break out of our foolish cycles and it wants to convince us to heed wisdom's call. You want the benefit of compounding interest of wisdom. And finally, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fundamental realization that the truly wise make is this. God is God and I am not. God knows what he's talking about more than me. That's what verse 7 means. Verse 7 means we must be humble enough to be open to the teaching. This same verse is repeated in different ways throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. We're willing to say, I don't know it all, but God does, and so I listen to God. That's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord says our whole lives should abide by the will and word of God, not by our wants and our dreams and our desires, in spite of what Disney movies keep telling us. It's not about our dreams, it's about God's will. And God says we should run our lives this way, according to his will, not our own. Not because he wants to spoil our fun. That's not why we live according to his will. We live according to his will because God wants to give us life, and living according to his will blesses us. Proverbs 17, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And so wisdom always begins with the realization that I am not at the center of the universe. This world is not here for me. It's here for God. God does what God wills, not always what I will. The most important thing in the world is not that I always get everything I want and never suffer. The most important thing in the world is the will and word of God. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is your first principle. Everything else in your life, your hopes, your dreams, your feelings, your expectations, the fear of the Lord, from that flows everything else. That's where you'll find life. That's where you'll find wisdom and blessedness. That's where you'll find Jesus is in the fear of the Lord. Now, the question that, that always sort of nags, always lags behind in Proverbs, sort of hangs over a lot, and there's a lot of passages about this in the early chapters, is if wisdom is so great, if wisdom brings such blessings, then why doesn't everyone love it? 
Why doesn't everyone have it? Why doesn't everyone pursue it? And I think basically the reason is because genuine wisdom is not just some self-help philosophy about living your best life now. That's not real wisdom. Wisdom is not just to pick me up. A few tips, a few life hacks about accomplishing our dreams. Proverbs 1.7 says, Genuine wisdom always begins with the humiliating act of humbling ourselves before God. But not humiliating for its own sake. Humble so that God may raise us up. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so my question is, are you living by Proverbs 1 and verse 7? Do you have the fundamental trait that all wise people have? The fear of the Lord. Maybe there's someone here that realizes that your life has basically, basically been lived for yourself, pursuing your own dreams, your own desires, your own comfort. It's time to give up that foolish way and to pursue God. If you need to come, do so now as we stand and sing.